Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the book of Hebrews. We are going to veer from our study of the Gospel of Luke this morning. For the sake of our topic at hand as we consider and remember the persecuted church. I'll not spend a lot of time introducing to you the book of Hebrews, but actually we come to the book of Hebrews, there are some things that we don't know. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Some insist that it's a Pauline letter or homily, but I do not agree with that. I don't think it has the, the character of Paul, just for some of the comments that are throughout the book. If you believe it is Pauline, that's fine. There are many who agree with you. Nor do we know the precise recipients. In other words, this is not a, a work that is addressed to, for example, the church at Philippi, the church at Ephesus. By reading the content of the book of Hebrews, it seems that we can come to the conclusion that the recipients were likely Jewish believers, those who had professed faith in Christ. And also we find in reading through the book of Hebrews that this was a group of people that was not new to persecution. They had, in fact, experienced it. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, where there the writer speaks of the former days when these who are receiving this letter endured great conflict of suffering. So suffering was not something that, that, that was foreign in the minds of those who received this letter or this homily. Or, and in fact, there's even some debate exactly what, what it's called, what it should be referred to, how it should be referred to. But it seems that the saints here, or those who had professed Christ, had come to a crisis point. It come to a point where there was some measure of spiritual carelessness, of spiritual apathy setting in. And the writer of Hebrews refers to them in, in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 11 as becoming dull in hearing. And it appears to be, by again, what the writer seems to be addressing in many of the, the uh, exhortations that he gives there, that there was these, this group of Jewish converts, those who had professed faith in Christ, who are now considering renouncing Jesus as the Christ and returning to what we know to be the shadows, to be the forms, to be the the antitype preceding the type, I'm sorry, the type in the Old Testament that was fulfilled in the antitype of Christ himself. So this this group that we read here, and we're beginning in Hebrews chapter 12, our text will be verses 3 through 11. I'm going to read for the sake of context, begin with chapter 12, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 11. And again, our text will be 3 through 11. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured 
such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Well, you don't have to read very much of Scripture before you realize that the suffering in the life of God's people it's God's design. It's part of God's design for this work that we, the theological terminology, we call sanctification. God's chosen and ordained that we endure sufferings in their present experience, in our present lives. It's part of His work. And I really have basically two goals this morning and bring this message to you. First of all, I don't want to deny the fact that we do, even here, as followers of Christ, experience varying, varying measures of, of suffering. We're not immune to that. Uh, some sufferings would be simply the sufferings that come upon us because we do live in a fallen world. But some sufferings are, in fact, and do come, in fact, even here in the Western world, in forms of persecution. And I hope as we consider that this text today that it will be, first of all, an encouragement to us. That in the midst of suffering, in the midst of whatever persecutions that we may experience, that our perspective might be biblical. That we might see these things as God has explained these things for us so wonderfully and so clearly for us here in Hebrews chapter 12. Secondly, my goal is this. As we remember specifically week by week to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world of those whom we refer to as being in, quote, the persecuted church. Those who are suffering intensely for the cause of Christ. Those who are laying down their life for the cause of Christ. That we remember those who suffer that they might likewise have the proper perspective and multiply whatever sufferings or persecutions that we experience tenfold. And think how difficult it might be to be faithful to the cause of Christ in the midst of the persecutions that they're going through. And you think about how many times that we're ready to quit here and what we call suffering. 
to pray that the, that the people of God that we pray for on a weekly basis would have a biblical perspective on their suffering. That they might be strong in the Lord. So that's twofold my goal here. Now the text here makes very clear that really the emphasis here is that God is a father to his children. That God is a good father. He is a perfect father. And that we're to keep the fatherhood of God, the fatherhood to believers, in sight, in focus. And in doing so, that we recognize that suffering is actually a means of God's loving discipline. Because we all need discipline. We all need correcting because we're not perfect. We're not without sin. We still fail. And so God uses the sufferings of this world. God uses persecution in the lives of His people as a form of an expression of His loving discipline. Now, so what I want to consider this morning as we look at this text and think about this text is the ways that we can recognize His love in our sufferings. The ways that we can recognize God's love for His people, for His children in the midst of His sufferings. Remember, this is the love of a father for His children. First of all, we're encouraged here by this text to review the past of God's ways. To review the past history of the ways that God has worked throughout the Scriptures, as revealed to us in the Scriptures. So the author here of Hebrews reminds us that discipline and that chastisement that comes has always been a part of God's redemptive work in the lives of His children. It's not unique to the 20th century. It's always been a way that God has worked in the lives of His people. And He gives here three things in this text. First of all, He gives an Old Testament encouragement to remind them in this text. Verses 5 and 6. And He says, You have forgotten the exhortation. Isn't that a lot of the problems? You've forgotten, dear saints. You've forgotten the exhortation. You've forgotten the words that God has given to you to instruct you. And the writer here says in verse verse 5 to these recipients that you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you. To you as sons. And then what does he do? He quotes to them from the Old Testament. He gives them an Old Testament encouragement. He quotes from Proverbs chapter 3 verse 11. says, My son... Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when ye are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. You say, now wait a minute. Here, He is talking about the discipline of a father. I'm talking about suffering. I'm talking about persecution. And the writer of Hebrews says it's to be seen as one and the same. You see the sufferings of this present life. 
You see the persecution, the persecutions brought against you, brought against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in this, in this present life. You see them as the disciplining hand of God. It's God's means of bringing about correction to His children. So He says to these, and He says again to them, You've forgotten this. And this is addressed to you, dear saints. Just as it is addressed to us today as sons. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not faint. Do not lose heart when you are reproved by Him. And you see, so much of the problem that comes upon our lives is when we experience the sufferings and we experience the hardships that we have removed removed this from the context of a loving father dealing with his children. You know, we don't look at our sufferings and we don't look at persecutions as the discipline of the Lord. And so we faint because we don't see it as being reproved by him, do we? How many of the hardships, how many of the persecutions, how many of the, of the sufferings that you experience, how many of the trials that you experience in your life are you willing and ready to relate to God? I receive this as from your hand. Rather than opposing the flesh and blood of the hands of the people that it comes from. See, we lose heart because we've lost sight. That this is God's way to reprove His children. We see flesh and blood. We see people and men and women who are persecuting, who are bringing sufferings upon us and upon our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're losing sight of the fact that there is a God in the midst of this and that God says, see these sufferings, see these persecutions, see the trials of your life as my means to bring about discipline and correction into your life because I am your Father and I love you. So the Old Testament encouragement there, he says in verse 5, it's an exhortation addressed to you as sons. And verse 6, a reminder, God, he scourges every son whom he receives. Beats them. And then in verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. And then the rhetorical question. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? So the conclusion that one could draw from what the writer here gives is that discipline and suffering is an evidence of sonship. It is an evidence of God's paternal love for us as his children. But it not only gives the Old Testament encouragement, he also cites Old Testament examples, not here, but back in chapter 11, which we all know as the, the hall of fame of the fame of hall of the fame of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And we'll not look at all these, but these were those that we would look at. And many of these we would say, well, these are certainly the giants of the faith. Some of the names mentioned here in in Hebrews chapter 11, man, these are the. The great men of God. These are our forefathers. These are the patriarchs. These are those with whom God has made His covenant. These are those whom God has revealed Himself mightily on their behalf. And how many of those 
were spared from suffering. You know, if we look back in chapter 11, we can see that there are many there are mentioned in verse 4. There's mention of Abel. Well, he's paid the ultimate price for righteousness, righteous living, did he not? Was he spared suffering? He was murdered by his own brother. Noah is mentioned in verse 7. Noah, a man who is faithful and obedient to God, certainly a man disregarded in proclaiming his message, a man who is largely outcast, we can imagine, from because of the message he proclaimed, the work he was doing, and a man who watched the world that he knew be destroyed. There's suffering in that. There's hardness in that. Abraham, in 11, verses 8 and following, who left his home, he left his family, he left his land. For what? He didn't know what. For certain. Abraham, who endured the trial and the test of offering his son Isaac. And you say, oh, well, he didn't have to do it. (laughs) He knew he was supposed to. And he was going to. In chapter 11, verse 13, it says, All these, they died in faith without receiving the promises. They didn't receive the full measure of the promises of God. In fact, none of the Old Testament saints did. In that they didn't see what was coming in the fullness that we see in the coming of Christ. It speaks of Joseph in chapter 11, verse 22. Joseph, a man who was betrayed, a man who was falsely imprisoned, a man who was forgotten in prison. Moses, verses 23 and following, he forfeited all of his earthly advantages that he had in being raised in an Egyptian home. And he says in verse 26 that he deemed the reproach of Christ, deemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than Egypt's treasure. And then you see in, in chapter 11, verses 32 and through 35, you see all these great deliverances. And what more shall I tell you from time? For time will fail me if I tell you, verse 32, I tell you of... You've got to wonder if some of these made it in here, but they did. If I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith they conquered kingdoms, they performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions... Quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. What great deliverances we see here on behalf of the people of God. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He continues in the last part of verse 35. Others were tortured, not accepting their release. So that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, chains and imprisons. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They, were, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins. Being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. So great sufferings among the people of God in the Old Testament examples that the writer of Hebrews have given. So the conclusion that one could rightly draw from this 
is that discipline and suffering has been the mark of God's people throughout history. Even among the greatest, and I might even say especially among what we would deem to be the greatest of saints. But he continues here, beyond the Old Testament encouragement and the Old Testament example, he gives to us the Old Testament expectation, which is in Christ himself, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 12. The writer exhorts the readers to, verse 3, to consider him, to consider Christ. To consider Christ who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You think of Christ. In the midst of your trials. In the midst of your suffering. Think of Christ. The one who was spoken of even in the Old Testament. He's revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. Isaiah 53 so beautifully. As a suffering savior. That he comes to suffer. He comes to lay down his life. And even in the earlier parts here of verse, of verse uh, chapter 12, verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Think of Christ. Should we expect, as the followers of Christ, that we should be treated any better than our Savior was? Than our Master was? In the very words of Jesus, they'll treat you the way they've treated me. They hate you because they hated me first. And Jesus, suffering, he endured such hostility by sinners against himself. And here's verse 4 here's perspective. You think of Christ, and you used to remember you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, and you're striving against sin. I remember being in Bible school and one of the things we did every morning, we had calisthenics exercise for about 30 to 45 minutes. And sometimes the one of the teachers who was actually the, the leader of our calisthenics exercise class, he'd get on one of these little rants. You know, today we're going to do 20,000 sit-ups. <laughs> or today we're going to run until you can't run anymore. Your legs are going to fall off. You know, somebody would say, oh, hurting. He'd say, are you bleeding? No, not bleeding. Well, you're fine then. Let me ask you. In your battle against sin, are you bleeding? Do you shed any blood and you're striving against sin? Think of your Savior. Consider Him who endured such hostility by sinners. You've not yet resisted, yet, not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Jesus' suffering is certainly not due to any sin. He had none. His suffering was at the hands of evil men, a demonstration of a fallen man's continued perpetual hostility toward God. The unrighteous toward the one who is perfect righteousness. 
And even within this, we see this, that we see the, the perfect plan of God. The sufferings of Christ was not God has lost control and men are running rampant. Luke tells us in in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 23, that all the wickedness done, perpetuated by the hands of men against Christ, was according to the foreordained plan of God. They did nothing that God had not ordained. They went no further than God had ordained. God's plan. So the conclusion that one could draw by considering Christ considering his experiences, that suffering is not to be regarded as being in correlation to specific sin, nor is it a sign of God's displeasure. It's the way that God has chosen to bring about sanctification in the lives of his people. It's through suffering. And to us. It is not for us to chafe and to complain at the suffering, at the discipline that may come into our lives as if men rule and not God. We don't do that. We always have a higher perspective, a higher understanding that behind Ultimately, all that comes upon me in my life, whatever the level of suffering, whatever persecution it may be, that there is a God in heaven who is sovereign, who rules, and He has chosen and ordained to the very detail the sufferings and the hardships, the trials that I experience. And He uses suffering as a loving Father to mature us to Christ's likeness, but also to pray for those who suffer. To pray for those who suffer in much greater intensity than we do here in the West. To pray for those who suffer that they would not, as exhorted here, verse 3, that they would not grow weary and lose heart. To not lose sight of the fact that God is in heaven, that God is your Father, and become so focused upon the persecution, upon the persecutors, upon the flesh and blood. That you lose sight that God is your Father. And that what you're doing, the life that you're choosing to live, is by His is according to His will, it's by His grace. Do not grow weary and lose heart. To regard suffering as a testimony of what it means to be identified with Christ. And he who suffered, he who is the suffering one. We are with him, we likewise suffer. Second thing we want to consider here is to respect the the perfection of God's wisdom. To respect the perfection of God's wisdom. And again, the writer here emphasizes this comparison and contrast between an earthly father and a heavenly father. And the argument that he makes here is one from lesser to greater. He speaks about the earthly fathers. You need to remember when we speak of earthly fathers, even how, how Jesus referred to earthly fathers. Those of whom Jesus said, you who are evil. You know how to get good gifts to your children. You who are evil. 
That's the way Jesus just references what it is to be an earthly father who is corrupted by sin. Corrupted by the fall. And here the writer notes in verse 10, he says that these earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. A few years of training, they do a few years of that, and then we're out. But also with limited wisdom. He says there in verse 10 that they do it for a short time as seemed best. It seemed best to them. What father here would not readily admit that some of the decisions you've made in regard to the discipline of your children at least warrant being second-guessed? You know, questioning, wondering, as you've disciplined your children, have I been too lenient? Have I been too severe? Was I right? And what I perceived here, was I wrong? We know all the imperfections of fatherhood. If you're a father or a mother. And you say, we have these earthly fathers and they deal with this on this limited wisdom. Limited knowledge. It seems best to them. And to be honest with you, sometimes what seems best to me is, is wrong. But he says, we respect them. Verse 9, we have earthly fathers to discipline us. We respected them with all the limitations that they had. Very short time. Very limited in what they know. It's not like that we can look into the experience of our children and, and sovereignly know every detail, everything that's interacted. I can't sometimes figure out even an argument with my children who's right and who's wrong. And I'm a lot smarter than there and I can't figure it out. So I just... Get both of them. <laughs> there it is. What seems best. And then you got the laminate. <laughs> and he says, we respected them. And rightly so. Rightly so. With the assumption that earthly fathers do know more than we do. The argument that he developed from this in verse 9 is, shall we not much rather than, this is greater from, from lesser to greater, if we respect earthly fathers with all of their limitations, all of their imperfections, we respect them, should we not much rather, how much more should we be subject to our heavenly Father? He describes in verse 9, as he described there as the Father of spirits and live, who is unlimited in His wisdom, unlimited in His knowledge, unlimited in His resources, unlimited in His power, who works unquestionably, verse 10, for our good. He disciplines us for our good. See, God can discipline and God can bring about correction in our lives through any means that He pleases, can He not? He has unlimited resources. Use whatever will you will. He's God. He's free to do that in the lives of His children. He has no limitations. And if He is all wise, that we must trust 
that the means of His choice for us is best for us. It is good for us. And then is it not true that much of our difficulty is not the reality of God's discipline as much as it is that we don't like the means that He's ordained? We would expect that God would deal with us as a father. He would bring about discipline. We would like to choose that discipline. And to let it be a, maybe a verbal reprimand from the scriptures in our quiet time. Yes, Lord, correct me as you will this morning in my quiet time. I can handle that. Or perhaps that still quiet voice while reading or gathering the worship. Or maybe even maybe maybe a, a reprimand by the pastor from the pulpit just in a passing comment. You know, nothing direct. It's amazing how many times that someone would come up to me and say, after a message, when you said this, that just Lord really spoke to Martin. And how many times, it's not in my notes, and I don't even remember saying it. It's in my notes the next day. I write it down. <laughs> this guy put it in there. You know, that's the way I want God to discipline me. Gently, painlessly, inconspicuously. And that God chooses the means of suffering for His people as many times as through malicious and unlovely and obnoxious people. That's, that's where our gripe is, isn't it? I'm all for the disciplined hand of God, but let me choose the means. And if we serve an all-wise, all-loving, perfect Father who has every resource available to Him to use whatever He will to bring about discipline and correction in our life. We must trust that the means that He uses, even people, we must trust that it's best for us and that it is good for us. He is our loving Father. There are no errors in His judgment. No improvements to be made upon His decisions and His choices. Hence, there is no place for complaint against His means either. Because to complain against His means is to criticize His wisdom. I speak much to my shame this morning. I'm a complainer. I'd like to pick the ways that God would discipline me and He just doesn't do it that way. He does it in the ways that hurt. He does it in the ways that show me the blackness of my own heart. He does it in the ways that show my need of Him. And by His grace, He does it in the ways that ultimately they drive me to Him. Drive me to Christ. If it was always God disciplining us in these painless and quiet and inconspicuous ways, we might get the idea that we're doing pretty good. Man, I'm coasting. Sailing in this Christian life, man, it's great. But He brings about the discipline, the trials of our lives that bring pain. 
and exposes what's in there, doesn't he? That is sanctification. Sanctification is not being told how good you are. Sanctification is being brought more and more to the likeness of Christ by having exposed to you how bad you are. That's sanctification. And he does that. May God's people grant God the due respect that is His, but to trust His heart. Trust the perfections of His wisdom. Would you improve upon God's wisdom? Respect it. Respect Him. And finally, to rejoice in the promise of God's work. The writer again reminds the readers here that suffering is not an end in itself. In other words, we do not suffer for suffering's sake. We do not suffer so that you get through, well, I suffered. That's not what it's about. If God be in it, if God be in our suffering, if God be in in the persecutions, if God be in the trials that come in our life, and He is, He is in it. Then there is a purpose. It is a means to us, according to verse 11b, it is a means to us of spiritual training. Verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. (laughs) There's the understatement of the world right there, isn't it? Seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of of righteousness. It's not joyful. Discipline is not intended to be fun. Because you shouldn't want to come back to it. It's designed to drive you away from whatever brought it upon yourself. It seems it is sorrowful. It doesn't seem joyful. But it has... A goal. And the goal here in verse 10, the last part of verse 10, it says He disciplines us for our good so that we may share His holiness. It is conforming us to Christ. It is Christ-likeness. It is causing our lives to be more holy. That's the goal. To share the peaceful fruit. The last part of verse 11. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. See, the way is painful and difficult and sorrowful but but the end is glorious the end is such that when you get through it you say I'm glad I went through that if it took that to bring me to this That's what God intends. We can even say from our own experiences, many of us, we can look back at some of the what we deem to be some of the hardest times of our lives as we've, as we've walked with the Lord. And in the midst of those times, we wanted out, didn't we? But in the process, and the Lord, in, in spite of us, <laughs> He used that process to, to accomplish 
some measure of His work of sanctification in our lives so that we got beyond it, we looked back and we see. And what do you even say? I wouldn't want to go through that again. I would never have chosen that, but God taught me things through that that I never would have learned any other way, and I'm thankful for that. If it took that to get me this, I, I can rejoice in it. But we've got to remember, folks, when you're in the trial, when you're in the trial, it's not always easy to see the glory, is it? It's not always easy for the person who is training in the, for, the, uh, for the athletic competition, for the Olympics, as he gives himself year after year and day after day, hour after hour after training and training these guys that, that run and do these things. It's, it's not always, if your goal is to get a gold medal at the Olympics, it's not always easy to keep it, you know, somewhere you get along the line and say, is this really worth this? And they determine that it is, or they give themselves, they keep giving themselves. Even the, the example of Jesus. Verse 2. Who for the joy set before Him. Here was His focus. Joy. Before, for the joy that was set before Him, what did He do? As He looked to the glory, to the joy... He endured the cross. He despised the shame. It's an example of Christ. You know, Paul's evaluation, a man who greatly suffered. He tells us in Romans chapter 8, Do I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us? He's got the glory set before him. Folks, for what I had before me, what I am enduring as a follower of Christ, it's nothing. It's nothing. It's not even worth consideration. Romans 5, 3 and 4. Not only this, we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. James 1, 2, and 3. Consider it all joy, my brethren. When you encounter various trials. Knowing that the test in your faith produces endurance. How did you do in your last trial? How many of you in your last trial can say, man, I looked at it in the face and I considered it all joy. See, we've got to get beyond the present and keep before us the eternal. The joy, the glory that's set before us. It's there. We have the assurance, the promise. To rejoice in the promise of God's work so that we can join with James there. And then when the trials come, I remember hearing a man speak one time. And he was speaking from this text here in James. And he read that verse. He said, folks, I've made up my mind. The next time a trial comes, I'm going to rejoice. 
I don't know how well he did. But I thought, you know, we just need to make up our minds, don't we? Whatever the trials, I'm just going to rejoice. I'm going to count it all joy. Because this is a trial that is producing endurance in my faith. It's building within me some spiritual stamina. So we must not be so focused upon the means that we lose sight of the goal. Our sufferings are real. You can't minimize You can't deny it. They are real. I'm not asking you to pretend like it's not real. I'm not asking that at all. Your sufferings are real. But so is God. So is His grace. And so is His promise of glory. That is real. Keep that before us. I think I've shared with some of you before this when I was in seminary at room a couple that lived across the hallway from us in the uh, our apartment on campus. A dear friend, dear brother, Lord Jeff Lonia, he's serving at a PCA church in St. Louis, but uh, he was sharing the story of taking a youth group out to do some. He was an outdoors kind of kind of guy anyway, and he was in all this adventure stuff, you know, go camping and sleeping on rocks and rappelling down mountainsides and kayak, you know, all that stuff. Uh, I'm not. I like terra firma. But Jeff was good at that, and he would he talked about the occasion that he took a youth group out, and they were going rappelling down the side of a rock mountain. And there was one boy in the group, he said this boy was kind of tentative. He had never done much, but he came. And he said they got to, they, you know, they were talking, he says he went, got quieter and quieter, and he got to the top of this mountain this hill or what it was they were going to rappel down the side and the young boy looked at Jeff and he asked just one question he said do you really know what you're doing and that's the very question we ask God a lot of times isn't it when he brings the suffering and the trials Lord do you really know what you're doing He does. He knows well. He knows well. And He intends to accomplish a work within us far beyond anything we would have imagined for ourselves. Now, the path that we would choose, very little, if any, growth. But God's way assures, assures that this process of sanctification continues on. And assures of an awaiting glory. Suffering as a son. To review the past of God's ways through the Old Testament, through the Scriptures. Be reminded in your trials, in your sufferings. You're not unique. And if nothing else, consider Christ Himself looking unto Jesus. And to, to believe, to respect the perfection of God's wisdom. He is infinitely wise has every resource available, and he chooses specific specific trials, specific sufferings, just for you. And to rejoice in the promise of his work, we have an eternal glory that awaits us. And when it's all said and done, whatever we endure now, when it's all said and done, we'll get there and we'll say, it was worth not only that, but even much more had God ordained to have brought much more in the way of suffering. 
It's worth it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I just confess on my part, I am not a, a good sufferer. And I read of the courage and the testimony and the faithfulness of our brothers and sisters who suffer much more intensely than I and stand faithful. Lord, help us. Help us to be faithful here. But help our brothers and sisters around the world who endure hostility at the hands of sinful men. Show forth your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.